the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, there's actually not a restaurant at the end of the universe, but there is a frying pan, soft shell paper bag delicacies, and hardcore double taps. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of our roundtable discussion with David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson on religion, science, and science fiction this time. These are three believers and one atheist, and we get some fascinating consideration of how religion relates to being a believer, a historian, a scientist, and or a writer. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's under a graveyard sky. Now, here's the news. The hardcovers have molted their shells, and we now have some delicate soft-shell trade paperbacks available this month, namely A Call to Duty, which is book one in the Manticore Ascendant Early History Honorverse Series, written by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, uh, with Thomas Pope and taking place in the early days of the Star Kingdom and the Royal Manticoran Navy. Also out are two omni-sized trade paperbacks, the perfect size for readability, I might say. These include Lord of Janissaries by Jerry Pornell and Roland Green, which is a new gathering of the titles Janissaries, Clan and Crown, and Storms of Victory. It's all about Captain Rit Galloway and his band of mercenaries taken from the earth by aliens, and thrown into a universe of dangers and opportunities. Also out is a collection of military SF humorous stories, edited by Hank Davis, our own editor emeritus here. This one is called Future Wars and Other Punchlines, and includes the work of uh, Frederick Pohl, Semak, Frederick Brown, uh, Gordon Dixon, and many more. The future may be grim, but that only means that humanity needs a good laugh more than ever. A Call to Duty, Lord of Janissaries, and Future Wars and Other Punchlines are all available at booksellers everywhere. Here is part two of our two-part series on religion, science, and science fiction with David Weber, creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Honorverse series and many other books, and Eric Flint, creator of the multiple New York Times selling Ring of Fire series and many other books as well. And Les Johnson, who is a space scientist who works for NASA. The opinions he expresses here are his own, however. He works on uh, interstellar spaceflight ideas and on solar sails. Les is the author of Rescue Mode with Ben Bova, Back to the Moon with Travis Taylor, and is the editor of Going Interstellar, our excellent collection of science fiction stories and nonfiction, all about the possibilities and perils of interstellar travel. And Rob Hampson, who is a professor and brain scientist at Wake Forest, and the writer of many a cool 
nonfiction article on neuroscience at the Bain.com website. One of the big questions of the 21st century is one that maybe Rob can answer now for us. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's a big ethical dilemma people are going to have is that you're a brain scientist. Everything that makes up the human mind has to be in the brain. Maybe, I guess, maybe you don't believe that. But So how can there even be a supernatural or spiritual aspect to humans? Well, the thing about it is, is that not everything in the human mind can be pointed to the brain. We can look at the brain. We can look at brain function. Can have a person listening to music or reading a book or mentally conducting an orchestra and see that there are locations in the brain that become active when they're doing it. But we can't look at that and say, what if this is actually music? What makes this music? What makes this a thought? We can pinpoint what part of the brain controls parts of the body. We can, we can see that there's information, there's activity that corresponds to information being processed. But we can't pinpoint things that are thoughts. We can't pinpoint feelings. We can't pinpoint intelligence. Now, uh, we all know a science fiction author who would say that that's all a quantum wave function uh, that connects all living things. But that's, we can't say that. We don't know. In fact, one of the things that we've learned is that it's very difficult to predict the operation of the brain. It's a nonlinear process. It, it, what you get at any given time is very dependent on the conditions that came before, which is one reason why twins don't have identical behavior. Identical twins will at some point become different from each other, and that's because there is a function that's going on. And frankly, if it were the case that every element of what we call the mind could be mapped to the brain, identical twins would never differ. They would say the exact same thing at the exact same time because their functions would be running absolutely independently. And yet we look at several elements of the brain function, and, and here we're talking about a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging. Most people understand the MRI machine when they go to have their knee or their shoulder uh, scanned so that they can figure out where the soft tissue injuries, or they might under, you know, understand the function of the MRI for looking at the structure of the brain. But if you tune the MRI so that it picks up oxygen and you then look at the part of the brain in which most of the oxygen is going. You're basically looking at blood flow, and you can look at the activity of the brain. There's some really neat stuff that's come out in the past decade. Um, one is a section called mirror neurons. What are what, There's parts of the brain that are active when watching another person do a particular uh, action, a particular behavior. There are specific parts of the brain that are active when thinking about what another person is doing. And there's also what has been euphemistically called the God Center, which is when a person is praying or when they're thinking religious thoughts or they're reflecting back on a religious experience that they've had. You can see that there's activity in the brain, but the thing about that is 
We don't know what led up to that. Why is there a center that looks like that in the human brain that we don't necessarily see in a primate brain? Because we've done a lot of studies. Now, we know there's mirror neurons, and there's areas that uh, are active when a primate, when a monkey is looking at another monkey doing things, but we don't have the same experience. So when it, we refer to it in the field as the mind-body problem. We can, or the mind-brain problem. We can see where all of the activity of the brain is, but we don't know what causes that to be feelings. Scientists hedge their bets all the time. We talk about what's the probability of something happening, and the reason is because when it gets down to these processes, we can't really 100% predict what's going to happen. We can only 99% predict what's going to happen, no matter how well we understand the process that's going on. Now, to follow up partly on what Les and David have been saying to this point, uh, I think the Bible is full of incidents where God sets a process in motion and then sits back and watches it play out. We certainly see it in a lot of the Old Testament descriptions of how the uh, society played out and, and these interactions. So there's not really, in my mind, a disconnect with saying, okay, God created and let the process run. And the result of that process is what we see in front of us right now, but it still doesn't mean that there wasn't a creator and an intelligence behind it. And again, that's one of the reasons why I say what we look at uh, in terms of a supernatural or a spiritual aspect, it's personal, it's experiential, it's a nonlinear function because it arises out of earlier experience and earlier events. And it's something that we as scientists can't really pinpoint. I think that part of it is, this is coming from a uh, uh, Christian-centric viewpoint, so, you know, take it as you will. If you are going to posit uh, a God who believes in free will, you have to ask yourself, why does he believe in free will? Um, and I actually, some years ago, my son Michael, who was then about eight, I guess, nine, came to me and said, Daddy, why is God going to let the bad people win? And I said, say what? <laughs> and he says, the bad people are going to win. And I said, where did you get that? He said, it says so right in my Bible. And I said, excuse me? So he went and got it, and it was his uh, illustrated children's Bible. And he had been reading Revelations. And I was like, you know, I wish he'd waited till he were 13, 14 for this conversation. But I said, you know, no, no, the bad people aren't going to win. They thought they, they think they're going to win. And he said, well, why are there bad people? And I told him, I said, look, you know, when you're a, uh, uh, an infant or a young child like you are now, your parents tell you what to do. But there comes a time when we can't tell you anymore, when you have to go off on your own and we have to hope that you've internalized enough of the right reasons to do things that you'll do the right thing. I said, it's the same way with God, the way that I see it. In order for us to to develop, we have to have the opportunity to make mistakes. We have to have the opportunity to make wrong choices if we're going to make a right choice. And you can't have true belief unless you are also free not to believe. Um, and 
in essence, as I see it, our entire mortal existence is childhood. And that's what God is letting us do. And the downside of that is that when people are free to make their own choices, when they have freedom of will, some people are going to make choices that hurt other people, sometimes lots and lots of other people. And that is where we get what we call evil. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, um, I would. speaking of choices, uh, I, I really want to get uh, my Pascal's Gamble uh, gambit question in for Eric. Um, you know, that that's the idea. If you follow the strictures of religion, you live a possibly happier life and you get to be in on the afterlife if it exists. But if there's no God, death means oblivion. You haven't lost anything by believing. So Eric, why not just, uh, you know, you're, you're agnostic. Why not just say, uh, become a believer? That's not, yeah, I know because that's not how faith works. Well, but, <laughs> the, but you of all people, you know, I mean, have the ethical street you know i think of you as a humble good person so you got everything going for you to be religious yeah i know why don't i well because i just don't believe it i mean i'm sorry i do have faith it's just <laughs> works the other way you know um i really i can abstractly accept the idea of some possible call it supreme being if you want although i think that just begs the question because you get always back to the well who created the supreme being but I actually have more trouble with the concept of an afterlife because I think it actually just violates too many laws of physics basically um, but the point is I don't have faith I really don't I mean and that and if you don't have that you can't fake it you honestly can't um, um, there have been many times that I have regretted not being a believer, not not actually, I have to be completely honest. Not so much because I regret the 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 uh, um, thinking I'll have an afterlife, but more because there are a whole lot of people I wish there was a heaven and hell because they'd be frying an eternal damnation. Um, but they won't be, sadly. Um, I just I don't know. Um, it's part of what. Go back. I want to go back to something David said earlier, right. which is that the the problem with literalism is twofold. One of them is, I just want to point this out, every single literalist I know um, is always very selective about what they want to be literal about. Um, there are all kinds of things in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, um, the same is true of the Koran, that you know, people who are claimed to be literalists, I find, tend to pick and choose what they want to be liberal about and just studiously ignore the rest. Um, um, for instance, the Bible says very clearly on three separate occasions that thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, but I don't see any literalist Christians running around demanding that we reinstitute witch burnings. Um I think the reason for that is they know damn good and well they get pilloried if they did, but they will be literal about something else. But the key thing here goes back to what David said. I'm in the process of writing a novel right now, the friend of mine, which is an urban fantasy, in which the monsters that appear may have a biblical origin or they may have some sort of extra-dimensional origin. It's unclear. Um... And the point that a religious figure makes, a theologian, is that how could you tell the difference anyway? Because 
if God has the powers ascribed uh, to him or it or whatever, then there would be nothing preventing him from having biblical demonic creatures take the form of extra-dimensional aliens. You know, because he runs the whole damn show. Um, or having used extra-dimensional aliens for the for the biblical monstrous creatures in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this is where it gets really a lot more interesting than than if you. Uh, I don't know how to put this. Um, whether you agree or not with the 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 religious texts that are at the heart of of all the Judeo-Christian religions. I think any sensible person has to understand that even if you believe they're true, they were written down and codified by people thousands of years ago who simply did not have the framework within which to place those concepts, except the ones they use, which means that there may be truth there, but it's not necessarily exactly the way it's written down. Um, I think that, that's, that's, true for, that's true for what scientists are producing today, too. Uh, you get 2,000 years down in the future, and people are going to be, oh, how clean. And, you know, yeah, yeah, no, 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 there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, I'm actually leaving, there's one aspect of Hinduism that I've always found quite appealing, which is that, that at least with sophisticated Hindus, um, you know, and Hinduism has thousands of gods and goddesses. But if you ever talk to sophisticated Hindus, they, 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 what they will say is that not that they actually believe that any one of those individual deities is, is literally true as depicted. What they will say is that it is simply impossible in the nature of things for human beings to be able to grasp divinity mm-hmm. in, its, in, in its entirety. And so what we do as a way of trying to grope at it is come up and, and imagine different facets of it, and those facets are what are given the names of these different gods. Um, That's um, I the you know, there's a Christian version of that as well. C.S. Lewis's book "Till We Have Faces" makes that almost that same point that you, the gods can't look us face to face until we've come to the point where where they, what they say makes sense to us instead of just being beyond us. Yeah. Well, and I I think that you know I I was talking to a, a youth group uh, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, um, and I said, look, you know, I I have the same capability of visualizing God in His entirety as one molecule of my of my little toe has of visualizing me in my entirety. It's just totally different planes of reference. We can't do it, and God has to has to form himself into something that we can comprehend and understand to communicate with us. Um, and that this is why, in my opinion, um, the, we, have, we have the Trinity uh, in, in Christian faith. It's, this is how God has revealed himself in, in digestible chunks. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's similar yeah. to the Hindu notion of the Trimurti, the three, you know. Yeah, I know what you're mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to get in my question about beauty here. Um, beauty has, we're all artists in, in one form or another here. Um, it's always seemed to me to be as much of a problem for science to account for as, as it, to account for morality, say. Um, Les was talking about the, the grandeur of God, you know, watching the Perseids. Um, 
is and Immanuel Kant would have it have beauty be an end in itself, which is is something that seems to me a bit unscientific. Does it only serve some evolutionary or pattern recognition purpose, as the evolutionary biologist might have it, or is is beauty a sort of contingent proof of uh, something beyond? Well, from the, the the brain science point of view, again, what we're finding with some of the advanced uh, brain scanning techniques is there are parts of the brain that will respond, that become active when a person is viewing something that they consider beautiful. And one of the best ways to look at that is you show them artwork, you show them a picture of the sky. Uh, in my industry, we have a microscope company that runs a contest every year for beautiful pictures taken through your microscope. And what happens is you have areas in the brain that, in fact, will become active when you know, for something that person considers beautiful. Now, there's a, an interesting cause and effect problem. Do they call, consider it beautiful because that part of the brain lights up? Or does that part of the brain light up because it's beautiful? That gets back to the fact that we can't really say absolutely everything that the brain does. But we're wired to appreciate certain things. It's the it's the way the biology that makes up the human being works. Is that wiring? Uh, it, it I can't think of a purpose for it. Well, I and it comes down to the question of does there have to be a purpose for it? Well, what? And I guess that's the metaphysical yeah. question. I think I think that if you all right. From a purely pragmatic viewpoint, if you write God totally out of the equation, there is no God. We are all just the result of of uh, billions of years of random chemical and, and, and biological interaction that produced where we are today. I think that if you do that, in a lot of ways, you remove any moral compass uh, from the from the equation right along with him. If we are in fact the result of of all these random interchanges, then the best that we can hope is that however we got to where we are now, we are going to at least try and not make it any worse for anybody else. Okay? Um so I think that there's a a you are heading towards the, the wasteland of cultural relativism and and, and uh, an absence of belief and guiding principle. If you are adamant that there is no God, there is no no supreme being, you know, in that case, you're saying also there is no ultimate purpose towards our existence. We are simply... Uh, uh, a peripheral uh, biochemical reaction um, that will, you know, spend its time and disappear like the dinosaurs or whatever. Mm -hmm. A difference in temperature working itself out in the. Yeah, and 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 you know, I suppose I will grant you in theory that that could be the way that that it works um, in a uh, in. Uh, terms of what I myself believe uh, and am able to believe, um, 
that's absurd. Um, um, Giesler did a, uh, a book of Christian apologetics that he called, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And in some ways, that kind of sums up my own feeling. I can't put enough faith in all of the explanations of why there is no God to accept any of them. Well, let me ask Les this, since you did say the grandeur of God. Well, what what about that experience leads you to connect it to a supreme being? Why don't you connect it to, uh, you know, a giant uh, universal amoeba or something that's that's making this beautiful meteor shower? Well, to me, I, it's almost a spiritual moment. And, and uh, Rob was talking about this part of your brain that activates when you're having a religious thought or religious feeling, I, I don't know how to describe it any other way than to say I think aesthetics in general are transcendent somehow. Art, music, a good book, right? We all resonate with that. You know, you, you, you put those down or you finish looking at it or you're thinking about it or you're looking at the stars in the sky. There's, there's a feeling of otherness, of connectedness that, that you get. And it's a feeling that just doesn't happen typically in any other way. And, you know, in my personal life, I, I consider that a transcendent moment. I've touched something beyond me, and I view that as a spiritual connection to God. So that, that's my, how I view it. Mm -hmm. It's indescribable any other way. That's totally non-scientific, <laughs> but that's, that's what I get away with. It. Like, it's, 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 just, it's a transcendent moment. I, 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 let's drop, okay, to me... And, and some of the characters in my Safehold books are grappling at this right now. To me, science is in some ways the ultimate act of worship because you are trying to reach out and you're trying to look out and see God looking back at you. If you're, if you're really openly trying to get to the fundamental principles involved here, I think that's, that's part of what you're doing. Well, let me ask all of you uh, a question that, um, that I'd really like to know the answer to. Uh, and since we're talking about science fiction, uh, all of us being being intimately involved in it, let, can we play a pretend future? How do you see the relationship of science and religion developing in the next hundred years or the next thousand? Will science fiction contend with these issues and remain relevant, or or is it now a genre that's passing into the sunset? Predict the future, the relationship between science and religion, and is science fiction uh, any use in in uh, bridging the gap? Oh, I don't think okay. I don't think it ever has been. Uh, the truth is, science fiction has an absolutely abysmal track record when it comes to trying to predict the future. Um, reason that you will hear people constantly referring to Arthur C. Clarke's <laughs> prediction of communication satellites is that it's about the only hit they can point to. Uh, it goes back about 50 years. I mean, almost everything science fiction predicts winds up not to. Well, I'm, I'm really talking more about a... Uh... Eric, 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 I would disagree with you about that. I would say that uh, science fiction has failed to predict the way in which things may fair come enough, to fair pass. Enough, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. I mean, all I was really trying to say is I don't think that's really... Well, I, I'm fiction in the first place. Maybe I should rephrase the question in that science fiction um, is is a literature that has to has to deal with that 
relationship between science and morality, science and how we act and stuff like that. So even if it doesn't accurately predict a particular, uh, you know, an outcome, um, it, it talks about what people at that moment and maybe in the future are, are feeling about why they're here and, uh, you know, based on the new stuff we know. So that's, that's more, uh, let's be more subtle with the, my question to say, um, are, do we, is religion going to disappear? Um, is science fiction, uh, helpful in, in bringing people reconciling the two or, or, or driving them off? Um, okay. Uh, I think science fiction is either one of those, depending on the reader and the writer. And that's true of any form of fiction, not just science fiction. Um, I would be absolutely astounded if religion disappeared any time in the next six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. Um, and not just because of Looney Tunes like ISIS, uh, or, or, you know, other hardline fundies or, or, you know, whatever. Um, but because I think it's going to be a continually ongoing process of rediscovery when people find out they don't have the answers, they're going to go looking for them. Um, I agree with David on that. And, and I have to say, one of the things that has always annoyed me about a lot of science fiction, not all by any means, is that very often when science fiction writers posit a religion in the future, they just invent something on a whole cloth. And I'm sorry, but that's not how human history works. Um, one of the things I like... There's always, there's always Scientology. Um, yeah, there is, David. And, and and I also think the odds that Scientology is going to grow into a mass movement are extremely limited. It's not impossible. Uh, but the fact is that I mean, one of the things I like, for instance, about uh, David's Honor Harrington series, which is set about 2,000 years in the future, is that the religions he, he, he depicts there, you know, have, have evolved, obviously. They're not the same denominations we have today, but they are very obviously have a history that you can trace back to what happens. And, and human institutions in general, especially ones like religion, have a long, long shelf life. Uh, they change, but but, you know, very rarely does something just pop out of nowhere. And I didn't mind it too much when, well, I did actually, but, I mean, A.E. Van Vaux in his World of the Atom series just posits a completely new religion based on, on atomics, which, you know, okay, but in order to make that even vaguely plausible, he has to basically destroy all the civilization. So essentially people are almost starting from scratch. But a lot of this stuff is just plain goddamn silly. I'm sorry. Um, and it's always kind of ticked me off. Um, and I say this as a heart-bitten atheist, you know, but, um, I mean, it's like, you got to be a little bit realistic about how human society actually works. And, you know, anyway, never mind. Just getting off a pet peeve of mine. Les, uh, Rob, what uh, you want to weigh in on this? Well, well in I, terms of what we see in the future, uh, I am afraid what we're going to see is more schism within religion itself and a little bit more of a uh, hardening of positions. I, I see some elements of religion becoming very comfortable with science 
and in fact, possibly even going back to the idea that a lot of scientific research for many, many years was performed under the auspices of the church. I mean, if you take a look at uh, uh, Gregor Mendel in his initial work with genetics, Mendel was a monk. I've been to the monastery where he performed his experiments. So I think we may, may see an element of reconciliation between science and religion. I'm just afraid that at the same time we're going to see some more polarization where we have elements of a religious movement, one or more, uh, that rejects it all and, and at the same time uh, adopts the idea that, of course, science is the, the great evil and they uh, and they have ruined everything, and we may see those individuals withdraw from society in another form. Well, we might also see the uh, uh, that form of leadism as a variant on what we're seeing out of ISIS right now. Uh, people who who downplay the religious aspect of ISIS, who say it's all really all about politics and they're just using religious trappings are revealing, I think, the fact that they themselves do not understand how people of faith work for good or ill. Uh, and I see in I, – I have a friend on the West Coast who's the son of an imam, um, and his contention is that what's going on is that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, everyone in the Middle East who realized how the Arab world was falling behind the Western world and wanted to do something about it, went into engineering, medicine, finance, whatever, and they left Islam and the madrasas in the hands of people who didn't want to emulate the West, and that that's where the Wahhabis and, and the, the Islamic extremists we're looking at today are coming from. Um, and I think there is an uncomfortable amount of truth in that, and I think that is the danger point of religious motivation on the part of people who suddenly just reach the point where, okay, I can't handle this anymore. It, it affronts too many of my literalist beliefs, principles, and whatnot. And you're going to have lunatics who who are willing to to uh, resort to to violence or to at least imposing their orthodoxy on others. Now, at the same time, you have people of faith who deeply resent the the efforts of secularists to impose their orthodoxy on us. So there is uh, a lot of room here for the polarization that Rob was talking about that I think would be a very sad and unfortunate thing, but would not exactly be something that has been never experienced in the history of religion before. You might want to talk to uh, the, uh, the pre-Christian uh, Roman Empire about what happens when a bunch of lunatics who believe in a crucified carpenter from Nazareth get loose in society. And Rob? I don't really have much I can add. I think that, that, that those are all very good points. I think in, in the, the West and in China and in Asia, I think you're going to see uh, the kind of increased secularization of the religion of the society, but I think the religion of the people will still be there, and I think it will accommodate in that society. Well, what about your your field? Um, what if we, I mean, what if we achieve um, uh, the ability to upload or download portions of a personality? Um, 
what if AIs can start convincing us that they're smart instead of making us laugh when they try? It's an interesting problem. Again, I, I often tell people that the question of whether we can build an artificial brain or an artificial intelligence is not a matter of simply duplicating the number, having the same number of processors are, as there are the same number of cells, because the really important part is the connections. So it's more like we would have to have the same number of processors as we have the same number of connections. And now we're talking three or four orders of magnitude, so a 1,000 to 10,000 times as many as what people are predicting. But if I can put the, the science fiction hat on for a moment, one of the very interesting things going on right now with brain-to-computer interfaces is the ability to have a sensor that picks up different wavelengths of your brain activity. The brain is active all the time, and it, can, it generates a continuous EEG, but you can do things to cause the EEG to fall into certain frequency patterns. The most notable is meditation and the old classic 1960s biofeedback. But the truth of the matter is that you can cause your brain to have to, to generate patterns in a particular frequency. And you do this by concentrating, by, by using techniques that we would have laughed at 40 years ago, but the biofeedback is a useful tool. That is actually being used for brain-to-computer interfaces because there are patients who are quadriplegic that need the ability to uh, interact with a computer, to interact with a robotic arm, to interact with a wheelchair to take them around. And So, parting thoughts. Les, uh, we, you want to start? Well, I guess my closing thought is... Uh, as we just said previously, I think that uh, this whole notion of spirituality and people's faith is, is a part of what makes us human. And I think it's going to continue to be with us as long as we're human. I think it's going to be continue to be a theme in our literature and what we read and what we think about. And I don't see religion going away anytime soon, if ever. And I think we just need to reach an accommodation with the fact that uh, and this is the big conundrum, right? And this is what they're facing in, in North Africa and the Middle East right now is, is how to reach that accommodation with people that have different fundamental philosophical worldviews than you do. And I, and I think science fiction can play a role in that. I mean, it, 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 if, it, if it doesn't do anything else, it teaches you to stretch your mind and put yourself in other people's worldviews and situations. So, you know, on this whole topic, I think it's going to be with us. I think it's a good thing it's going to be with us, and I think we should turn it into a positive force. That's my upbeat assessment. Cool. Um, just uh, whoever would like to uh, put in some final uh, thoughts, go ahead. Eric, do you have? Hi. David, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that um, for whatever reason, human beings seem to be programmed to look for that connection with something greater. Um, we do it too persistently for it not to be a fundamental part of human nature. I think some people uh, uh, find non-religious uh, ends to which to to, do, to 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 hook that connection in themselves, but it's there. 
Um, and I think that it is going to be there as long until there's a fundamental change in what it means to be a human being. That's going to be there, and I think that um, religion is going to continue to be there along with it. Um, in terms of the uh, uh, the accommodation that Les was talking about, unfortunately, with some people, you cannot reach an accommodation. Um, it, it's just literally impossible because their worldview is so different from yours, and theirs is so intolerant that yours cannot coexist with theirs. That is an unfortunate consequence of freedom of will and the freedom to choose. And so sometimes the only accommodation that you can reach with someone, if there is no way for you to actually sever yourself from them, is to fight it out to see who wins. Um, and I am, I hope very much uh, that... Uh, the, the forces of a more uh, humanistic, which is an odd thing to say, but it is very true of, of the what I consider to be the true religions of the world, is that they have a very humanist bent to them. I hope that's going to, to triumph over the intolerance of someone like ISIS or the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, and uh, I think the jury's out. And I think one reason the jury is out is because of the people who insist that there is no difference between any faith-based person's faith-motivated actions and anyone else's. I was told by a fellow in Canada a while ago that there is absolutely no difference between ISIS and Southern Baptists. Now, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I found that questionable. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, you know, that's just, that's just the way it was. It's a, it's a uh, Southern Baptist, I told him he was wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I, think it's, I think it's something you have to look at. Uh, I will admit, some of my more intemperate moments, I got an argument with a Christian fundamentalist who was explaining all the things that I would should be forced to do, and I just said, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, your only difference with the Taliban is just simply a difference over which God is the right one. Um, I want to go back to something that David was talking about earlier, which has to do with his um, inability to believe there's no purpose. Um, I've always been actually fascinated by um, uh, uh, Hegel's theology, uh, and it was good for him that he's so hard to read <laughs> that the Prussian pastors who lauded plaudits and awards on him obviously couldn't understand what he was really saying, because Hegel has the only explanation for the existence of evil in a universe that has an omniscient, omnipotent God that made any sense to me. And what he says is and it goes back to the basic principle of dialectical logic, which is that everything is in a state of becoming. There is no such thing as a state of being. And that you can't define a subject without the object. So to put it in simple terms, you can't have a chair unless there's a chair maker, and you can't have a chair maker unless he's making a chair. Uh, so his answer to why there's evil in the world is that both God and the universe that he's creating are coming into existence. And 
basically he's still working on it. So, you know, it's it's that that's why things aren't really quite up to snuff yet. <clears throat> and first of all I found that quite charming, but insofar as I come anywhere close to having a religious or spiritual sentiment, I think and I will be long dead before we'll know. But I won't be surprised if, if eventually it turns out that intelligence, which may just be us and there may include other races, species elsewhere we don't know, but I think that intelligence may be the way the universe comes to be aware of itself um, and that we're all headed towards something that we just simply can't envision at the, at the moment. And if there's anything even remotely close to what I would call a god in my life, that would be it. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, Rob? I would not be surprised if in the future we find that there is a much better melding of science and religion to the point where right now we're using uh, brain activation patterns to control interfaces for people that are handicapped, that have uh, that are paraplegics or quadriplegics. There are devices that can read the frequency of the EEG, the rhythms of the brain. One of the things that we're learning with the brain scans responding to beauty, responding to sense of self, responding to religion, is that it's one possibility in the future we find that what we call religious experience now can in fact be melded with the new technologies of brain-to-computer interfaces. Uh, again, I, I, I fear that we'll see a lot of schism. I hope and, and indeed pray that we see uh, unification of the uh, scientists and the people who have a genuine experience of faith. But I, um, I can't help but wonder if knowing what we know, finding out what we're finding out about how the brain operates, including the religious experience and the sense of self and the sense of consciousness and all those things that we talked about that we don't know, uh, it, it may turn out to be the exact gap we need to move forward in the future. And that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see the reunification of science and religion. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion with it. I guess if we added a, a few more writers, we might call this the Bane Godhead. Um, with, I want to thank David Weber, creator of the Honor Harrington science fiction series, Eric Flint, creator of the Ring of Fire alternate history series, Les Johnson, creator of Solar Sails, and lately with Ben Bova of science fiction novel Rescue Mode, and uh, brain scientist and writer of popular science essays, Dr. Rob Hampson. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Take care. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place 
under a graveyard sky. We get to get off the boat, Faith said. Let me get this straight, Sophia said carefully. My uncle is chopping up people to make vaccine? Possibly, Tom said calmly. And yes. And you want me to help, Sophia said. You wouldn't be directly involved in termination, Tom said. Or harvesting. Or certain other aspects. Just working in the lab with Dr. Curry to produce the vaccine. The worst part is the first bit. Dr. Curry will handle that. After that, it's just centrifuging and the radiating materials. I'll help, Faith said. If it gets me off this boat. I'll find something for you to do, Tom said. Although I'm not sure what. I can't exactly put a 13-year-old on guard duty. You don't trust me? Faith said. Thanks a lot. At my back, sure, Tom said. Okay, a little white lie. He'd rather have her in front so he wouldn't get shot by an AD. In the lab, let's face it, Faith. You're not detail-oriented. True, Faith said, grinning. You trust me at your back? Really? Really, Tom said. And I'll figure out something useful for you to do, but not anything involving securing, terminating, or harvesting. Oh, and if this does come out and the authorities become involved, nobody knows nothing. Understood? Oh, yeah, Faith said, making a zipping motion on her lips. Sealed tight. I'll do it, Sophia said, shrugging. It needs to be done, and I can see why you chose me. I appreciate the trust, if not, really don't want to chop up people stuff, but okay. I'm sorry I'm asking, Tom said, but he'd already been back and forth enough on the subject. But yeah, thank you. And there's another bit he said, pulling out some paperwork. You need to hire me? Sophia asked. You're going to be an intern, Tom said. We'll handle the paperwork at the bank. This paperwork is making your parents associated security contractors with the bank and paperwork to permit the vast store of weapons I'm sure Steve brought to be legally held in New York Harbor. You can't even have weapons in New York Harbor, Steve said. What the hell is wrong with this place? The law on it is iffy, Tom said. But what they'll do is have the Coast Guard board you with some NYPD Harbor Patrol people along. If there are weapons, they may not legally be able to seize them, but they'll do a bend and spread on you looking for an excuse. Right now, the city and various corporations <coughs> are hiring security contractors left and right. This is all the paperwork. You fill it out, I'll file it and get the certification back to you. Technically, you're not fully legal until the certs have been authorized by the appropriate bureaucrats. But with certs pending review, you're covered enough. And the office that does certifications is overrun right now, so nobody should geek. When do we leave? Faith asked, standing up. I need to get dressed. As soon as your parents finish filling out the blanks on the paperwork and you get packed, Tom said. Why do you think I brought the big boat? And dressed how? Dressed for zombie New York, Faith said. You don't think I'm going walking through the streets of a New York overrun by zombies in street clothes, do you? Yes, Tom said carefully. Yes, I do. Because you're a 13-year-old girl. If you go walking through the streets of New York dressed up like a zombie contract hunter in Fallujah, you're going to get escorted to juvie, where, like as not, 
some kid will go zombie and bite you. So yes, you're going to go dressed in street clothes. I've got security waiting to pick us up at the dock. Are there zombie contract hunters in Fallujah? Steve asked. Yes, Tom said. And like I said, the idea is catching on in the States. Better to have contractors securing them than police. Put a bounty on them. There are legal issues, there always are, so get packed for a few days at Uncle Tom's cabin. Or condo, in this case. Can I bring my gear? Faith asked. Just in case? No firearms, Tom said, rolling his eyes. Other than that, if you can carry it, you can bring it. Ooh, got that, Faith said, darting below. And no bows, crossbows, or blowguns, Tom called after her. I hate you, Uncle Tom. Well, Kaplan said, catching the tossed rope, I can see the family resemblance. Sophia had packed one good outfit, a cream business suit and matching shoes, which was what she was wearing. She was carrying a briefcase and had a backpack over her shoulder. And because she wasn't stupid, she was wearing a nose-mouth respirator. Faith, on the other hand, she had on body armor and a full face mask respirator, and a tactical helmet, and a full coverage uniform, and tactical boots, and tactical gloves, and a radio, and a machete, and a kukri, and two or three more knives, and three, count them, three tasers. Because Uncle Tom hadn't mentioned tasers. Can you move on all that, kid? Durante asked. Yup, Faith said, her voice slightly muffled, she bent down and picked up one of Sophia's duffels, then tossed it through the air and hit the former SF NCO in the chest. Shoot, move, and communicate. That get through to you? Loud and clear, kid, Durante said laughing. Let me guess, you're the lab rat. Like she knows a pipette from a test tube, Sophia said, stepping delicately onto the dock. I see you have the bags, Faith dear. Like hell I do. Faith shouted. It was muffled by the respirator, which sort of ruined it. Get back here and do some work for a change. We've got it, Kaplan said, climbing in the boat. Just head up to the car. Where's the zombies? Faith asked, jumping onto the dock. Faith, Tom said, trying not to laugh. Just get in the expedition, he added, pointing. Where's the screaming crowds? Faith asked, throwing her hands up in the air. Where's the random gunfire? Queens, Kaplan said. But that's sort of normal. This sucks, Faith said. I'm bored. Oh, just do not start, Sophia said. Me start? This is going to be so much fun, Tom said. I should have looked in the phone book under deranged minion. Craigslist, Durante corrected. There's a whole section. Mr. Smith, the security guard said carefully. The retired NYPD cop was, after all, talking to his boss. You realize that most of this stuff is illegal to carry in New York City, right? Just humor, Tom said. It's not worth the argument. They'd taken a side entrance to the building, but it still had a manned security checkpoint where Faith, over protest, was being forced to disarm herself. God, this is embarrassing. Sophia said, hanging her head. You're embarrassed? Faith said, pulling out yet another knife. Then the brass knuckles. I'm being disarmed, 
in New York in a zombie apocalypse. I'm in charge of building security, Tom said, shaking his head. Me? I'll make sure you don't have to fight any zombies while in my building. Like that's being a friend, Faith said, dropping a sandbag kosh onto the pile. There, done. I need a receipt. Just give her one that says bucket o' weapons, Durante suggested. I wish you were legal, girl. I'd propose. Like I date old guys, Faith said, then thumped him on the shoulder. Just kidding. You're pretty cute for an old fart. So, you're the boss's niece, Dr. Curry said dyspeptically. Sophia's previous experience in a lab was high school chemistry. She'd made her usual A. She had no clue what most of the stuff in Dr. Curry's lab was for. There were big boxes with lights flashing on them. There were piles of complex glassware. There were computer cables snaking everywhere. Yes, sir, Sophia said, trying not to appear as terrified as she actually was. You can take off the respirator, Curry said. This is the clean zone. The hot zone is back there, he added, pointing to a door liberally covered with warning stickers. White, have you been blood tested? No, sir, Sophia said, starting to take off the respirator. Then keep it on for a second, Curry said, pulling out a lancet. I don't want to get exposed if you are. Hold out your hand. He lanced the tip of her finger, then squeezed a drop of blood into a small white card. The blood spread through a series of channels, and as it did, it turned blue. You're clear, Curry said. Now take off the mask. Yes, sir, Sophia said, finally pulling it off and shaking her head. Phew, that feels better. Don't get used to it, Curry said with a mirthless chuckle. You'll be in full gear in the hot zone. Okay, don't get freaked by all this stuff. It's useful, but you won't be working with most of it. Any of it, probably. What you are going to be doing is working with vaccine production. He paused and looked at her carefully. I understand that we're extracting the vaccine, or the virus bodies anyway, from the spinal cords of infected primates, Sophia said carefully. Correct, Dr. Curry said, nodding. Just concentrate on that word, primates. What you'll be doing is, frankly, all the scut work. There are several procedures. Some of them are tedious, and you'll be doing the tedious ones. I did them when I was in college and grad school. I'm getting too old to pipette all day. And then there's the washing up. I'll be in there most of the time, all the time at first. Working with you. I'll be doing the more complicated procedures. You just do as I tell you and you'll be fine. The only real danger, since the material is a blood pathogen, is getting it into a cut. Do you have any cuts at all? None on my arms or anything, Sophia said, holding them out. Okay, Dr. Curry said. I do hope you brought some other clothes. They're outside, Sophia said. May I ask why? Because there is no way you're working in a moon suit in a business suit and heels. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a dozen Greek demigoddesses singing the wrath of Peleus' son Achilles 
after he found out that he was actually adopted from a tribe of hobo insurance salesmen, made destitute after King Oedipus filed a claim against Athenian Needleworks Incorporated for not selling their wares with a warning label attached against poking your eyes out. Along with the Aurora Australis dancing to the music of the spheres in an ecstatic reverie of thanks and praise for David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bane Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bane Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.